We're very thankful Dr. Kreese has made his time out of his busy schedule to visit Harrisburg. So without further ado, please join me in giving him a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thank you very much, Alex. Um, and thank you for, for coming out this evening. Uh, I'm gonna talk about a subject that I think is really important, namely science denial. Science denial being not just the wholesale rejection of science, but the rejection of just specific certain specific findings when um, political, economic, or religious uh, motives come into play. So just rejecting a part of science, not, not the whole thing. And what I found that uh, was interesting to go back to the, the beginning of modern science and look at people who were interested in, uh, who first argued for the authority of modern science because they too encountered science denial. There were people who refused to look through Galileo's telescope, for instance. And I thought by looking at their experiences and the kind of science denial that they, that they encountered and the way they responded to it would, would help uh, understand contemporary science and, and because a lot of the same arguments and themes are just recycled. So let me begin by, um, by uh, showing you this painting. Now, this slide, you don't get any idea of how imposing this painting is when you see it. It's in the Louvre, and it's 13 feet tall, so it's, you know, it would be all the way uh, up here. It shows St. Paul um, raising his right hand, uh, evidently to admonish people, and his left hand, he's holding a Bible, and the his audience is, uh, some of them are rapt, others are afraid, and at the very bottom here, you see people burning books. Now, if you look very, very carefully, you can see geometrical figures, you can see mathematical figures on some of these books. And that's a not so thinly veiled reference to Galileo's saying that the, the book of nature is written in mathematical figures. So, uh, and what he was trying to do was establish a new kind of authority. That is, when, he, when Galileo, was, Galileo was born into a world that knew two basic kinds of authority. One was uh, moral or spiritual authority that was claimed by the church. The other was secular authority, authority over everything else that was claimed by, um, by governments. And he was trying to establish a third kind of authority. Oops. Um, the authority of, of mathematics and science. And so the question is, wh what can be done to get him to put down his right hand and maybe put out the fire? So that was the, uh, that was the question that motivated me. Uh, another person who, uh, so Galileo was arguing basically that these books, um, uh, part of his argument was that God created both books, right? God wrote the, uh, the, uh, the Bible and he also, uh, authored creation, he, he created the world. So studying the world, which for Galileo was done in mathematical figures, had to be, was just as pious, just as religious as this book up here, because they had the same author. So this book was a must read if you were a devout Christian. That was Ga Galileo's argument. So another person who argued for the authority of modern science was Francis Bacon, who depicted, who painted uh, a utopia in which science would be optimally used for um, for uh, the, the the good of the the world that it was in, um, in this book, the New Atlantis, um, it's a wonderful little tale. Gets a little bizarre in parts, but it it, it envisions this utopia where science is used for um, for the the common good. And so these two thinkers, Galileo and Bacon, didn't succeed not at first, 
but by the end of the century that they lived in, by the end of the century, uh, s the 17th century, the um, uh, governments were beginning to s were beginning to support laboratories, scientists, academies, experiments, and so forth, and uh, that has since grown into a huge interdisciplinary international network of laboratories that are um, that are in communication, and that's what I call the workshop. That is this large international co collection. Um, and now it's all over the globe, many different kinds of, of uh, laboratories together. So what happened? These laboratories are created to give us information, vital information about uh, things like communication, materials, pollution, um, and so forth. And uh, neglecting it is sort of like shouting. There are lots of, of issues nowadays that require scientific input to be solved efficiently and, um, uh, and, and well. And uh, so ignoring that is sort of like shouting, stay put in a burning building. So what happened? Now, it turns out that the very features that make science work, the very gears that make it go, also provide a seeming legitimacy for people to deny it. So I'm going to show you a few examples. Let's start with the first. Uh, science is able to transform values. So, you know, if you uh, discoveries about medicine, make you realize that uh, uh, diseases, some diseases are not the scourge of God, there's not punishment by God, but they are the results of uh, bacteria or infection. And um, they, it, uh, this was one that Galileo experienced. Galileo, um, there were only a few, um, only the, uh, Galileo was arguing for heliocentrism, the Copernican view that the that the earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. And this collided with a few sentences of the Bible. Not very many, but there's one or two sentences where the Bible says the sun rises, the sun sets. And uh, in the post-Reformation era, this the church was very sensitive about this. If there were any, the church was arguing that it had the authority to, um, to um, interpret the Bible, to, to provide the interpretation of the Bible rather than uh, individuals. And so if any particular part of the Bible was not literally true, they, were, they felt threatened. So Galileo um, then, wait a minute. So, so Galileo was then summoned to Rome, 1632, and uh, he was, um, because the, his book collided with, um, his theory collided with the, uh, the church authorities, he w he, he was, um, his work was condemned. So we see a lot of examples of this kind of science denial today. For instance, um, our uh, vice presidential candidate, um, it, uh, God's earth couldn't possibly be, we couldn't possibly destroy God's earth. Here's another one, Russ Limbaugh. My views on the environment are rooted in my belief in crea creation. We couldn't destroy the earth uh, if we wanted to. Um, the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, there's not the slightest possibility that the facts of science can contradict the, the Bible, and so n no fear that scientific uh, research can, can um, be in favor of, uh, of evolution. So you see what's happening. He's the, the Bible is used as the measure of, of value, of truth, and if science contradicts it, science must be wrong. Okay, so what do we do about that? What can be done about that? Well, Galileo was really clever. He was like a rhetorical bulldozer. He knew how to 
find arguments, find persuasive arguments, and to, um, to, to turn them against, and authorities, and to turn them against the people who are making these arguments. So he, he didn't say, look, this is true. He didn't say, look, science works. What he did was to cite the church's own authorities against them. He would take, he would quote church authorities like St. Augustine, Tertullian, a few others, and uh, he would, um, and he would um, then use these authorities to argue in favor of, of science. So um, one of the things he pointed out, for instance, was that, um, that the Bible isn't very good at describing nature. The Bible, the Bible only refers to one planet. Does anyone, anyone know what that planet is? Take a guess. What planet might be in the Bible? Well, I mean, it wasn't a planet. Earth wasn't a planet then. It was home base. Mars? No. It, 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 uh, Bible refers to, to um, Venus, and it bizarrely calls it Lucifer for some reason. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But one so, so Galileo pointed out, look, it's not very good at telling us about nature. And he put this in very pithy language. He said, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, but not how heaven goes. So uh, I thought that that was really clever. But you can imagine, you see what he's doing. He's taking the church's own authorities and citing, using them uh, uh, against um, his, uh, in favor of his position. So imagine what Galileo would do on a modern talk show. He would, he would, um, he would cite the very values of his opponents against them. And here's what I think that he would have said. Something like, the Founding Fathers told us to create legislation, not to legislate creation. So, so you see how going back to look at the early um, uh, arguers for the authority of science were the, um, uh, looking at their experiences are useful for figuring out, for understanding contemporary uh, science denial, but also for, uh, for figuring out what to do about it. Uh, another thing that makes science work is that it's technical and abstract. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, the, the book of nature written in mathematical figures. That meant you had to understand mathematics and science in order to understand it. But that, that's a specialized kind of knowledge. So not, not everyone's a scientist. Not everyone thinks like a scientist. So it, it suggests a break between uh, scientific thinking and ordinary thinking which can make, make people think that it's technical, science is technical and, and abstract. This is the very beginning of we what we now call the two cultures. So you get a another feature of science denial, another category is people who say, well, it's too technical uh, for, for my understanding, it's, it's irrelevant. So uh, laws of nature written in ma the language of mathematics, Galileo said, so some modern day science deniers uh, their move is to say, well, it's too technical. So here's one example. I am not a scientist. I'm interested in protecting uh, Kentucky's economy. Not the slightest sense that, that, uh, that climate change might really have to do with Kentucky's economy. But wait, let me, um, let me say something right now. I'm going to cite some quotes of science deniers here, but don't pay attention to their political affiliation because science denial is a bipartisan effort. People do it on the left and the right, Democrats do it, uh, Republicans do it. So this is, um, so you can find examples from, uh, from both sides. Here's another one. I am, here's from a Democrat. I am not a scientist, but, but I have expertise, I would say, in reading science, spotting junk science. 
This is Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, in, uh, who, is, uh, who was, was rejecting the studies of links between, uh, of studies showing that there's no link between uh, vaccines and, and autism. Here's another one by our uh, Chief Justice of our Supreme Court. The, there was a case brought before the Supreme Court which tried to sh prove that there was gerrymandering by relying on mathematical methods and our uh, Chief Justice would have, have nothing of it and said that it was sociological gobbledygook. And so, it, but in order to argue against this, you'd have to show, you have to explain the connection between the numbers and the, um, and the, the particular issue. Now, also science is fallible. And what I mean by that is one of the things that makes science work is that it's always open to revision. New data, new evidence, new methods of analysis can make you rethink what it is that you do and, and change it. So the, um, and it was most, uh, one of the, the earliest places where it's explicitly recognized is in Galileo's book, The um, uh, Dialogue Concerning the Two World uh, Systems. Now, remember I said, well, uh, Galileo was reprimanded in 1616, uh, but he had a friend, one of his good friends was a cardinal, Cardinal Barberini, and uh, very sympathetic. He used to have Galileo's books read to him at mealtime, and he would laugh at them. Uh, and uh, when Cardinal Barberini became, uh, became Pope, Pope Urban, and when he became Pope, Galileo thought, aha, here's my chance. I can write about heliocentrism, finally. So he went to, uh, he went to Rome, met with Pope Urban, and uh, uh, asked if he could write about... Um, about uh, heliocentrism, and Pope Urban said, yes, you can, but there's some conditions. Number one, you have to make the arguments for Copernicanism and the arguments for uh, the other side, for Ptolemaic, the Ptolemaic uh, uh, idea that, they, that the, the, the church was, uh, was promoting. And second, you have to say that since nobody knows the mind of God, any scientific finding is tentative. Now, that, that's a deep thought, right? I mean, nobody, there's no final version of science. It's they're, they're always kind of experimenting. Science is always moving. So this was a deep thought of Urban's, that, that no particular finding of Galileo or anybody else is going to be certain. So Galileo said, okay, I can do this. And he, but he, he uh, covered himself in many ways. First of all, he wrote his book as a play, as a dialogue between th three people. Because um, that's safe, right? You can't imprison a fictional character. You can't burn a fictional character. So it was a dialogue between three people, Salviati, who's a stand-in for Galileo, uh, Salgredo, who's kind of an intelligent layperson, and Simplicio, who is, as the name implies, sort of simple, he's sort of foolish, he's a, an Aristotelian. So he also put the, co the Pope's coat of arms on the cover, and he had a censor go over the, uh, the introduction. So he... Um, and then he published the book, and, uh, but it didn't work. And it didn't work for several reasons. One of which was he made the arguments for Copernicanism too strong. If you read the book, it was clear which way to go. Also, it probably wasn't a good idea for him to put the Pope's deep thought in the mouth of the fool. He put, <laughs> he had Simplicio speak it at, at, at near the end, and that, that was dumb, that was pretty dumb. So that after this, he was he was uh, uh, condemned. He was uh, sentenced to house arrest until 
the end of his life. But you see, so you, c you can sort of guess as to what the, the, the form of uh, science denial I'm going to talk about is, which is saying, hey, the jury is still out. It isn't finished. So for instance, you have our former EPA head saying, you know, why do anything about global warming because the jury's still out. We aren't sh the models are complicated and they, they could change. Also, we don't really know what the best temperature is uh, in, in the year 2100. You also have things like, uh, like uh, this, we, uh, by a creationist, our knowledge is only the best so far, everything technically viewed as tentative. So you see what that's, do you, so you see what's happening is that they're using this feature of science, which is a strong feature, it's part of the, what makes it go, it's what makes it work. A, a, they are turning it against against uh, uh, using it to provide the, uh, a bit of a seeming legitimacy for, uh, for rejecting it. A fourth uh, factor is it's institutional. It's done in, in these laboratories that I said, this, this workshop, which means any particular finding is not the opinion of somebody, but it's in cross-checked and re-examined and, uh, and so forth. So it's done in a, in a bureaucracy, in a... Um, in a, uh, an institution, it's done in a collective. But the danger is that the collective can have its own interests, and so what the findings that it issues may be the result of, comp uh, of compromises or, or uh, needs for the, the bureaucratic needs, rather than um, just uh, directly reporting the findings. And there are some very good cases of this, like the food pyramid. Remember the food py pyramid we were told about? You know, that, that turns out to be, uh, to have been a compromise between various factions in the FDA as to what was more important than what. And if you look at the, 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 the way that was decided at, it, uh, the way that that was decided, it was, uh, it was a complex bureaucratic issue rather than, than uh, a pure scientific one. Um, you can even see it in the New Atlantis. The New Atlantis had a, a, a community, Ben Salem, and in it, there was uh, a, a scientific workshop called Salomon's House. And the two, according to the book, the two are, are pretty harmonious. Um, the the uh, Salomon's House produces the findings and they're used by the, um, the, the community, Ben Salem. But you can see that Salomon's House, which, which seems completely transparent, th it, it's not completely so. For instance, um, it's all, all the leaders of it are men, and all the leaders of the island are men. So here, uh, you know, it's, n it's not like, wh why is that? It's, it's not like Francis Bacon didn't have female models in front of him. When he grew up, um, Queen Elizabeth I was queen. Uh, there are also other historical examples. So here's somebody, here's somebody who's incredibly prophetic. He, he saw 400 years in advance, one of the most far-seeing people, but he couldn't even see the uh, the equality of, of men and women. Um, there's something a little uh, a little strange there. The most charitable reading is that he wanted to promote science, and if he made men and women equal on his utopia, it would be very distracting. People would focus on that rather than the other thing. But that's just the charitable. I mean, it's terrible, but it's the most charitable uh, way of reading it. But anyway, you see there that the scientific institution in this supposed utopia is for a society for only 50% of the people. But you see what the fear is. The fear is that, the, that, s that science will be in the service of the top 1% or the top 10% rather than, than everybody. So you see s something like this. Dennis Kucinich, um, Democratic uh, congressman from um, uh, Ohio, 
accused the scientists who said that there's no connection between cell phones and cancer, he accused them of being motivated by protecting the telecommu telecommunications agency. Another one, a uh, famous one, is Jenny McCarthy, who uh, accused the scientists who said that there's no connection between vaccines and autism of, of basically working for the vaccine companies. Now, compared to those two cases, this seems positively sober. So, um, but you see, th there again, th th science works because it's done in communities, checking and cross-checking, but you can, you can also say that, the, the, uh, that those communities are acting in their own interests rather than uh, for, um, uh, for the good of everyone. Finally, science acts into nature, that is, it's capable not just of reorganizing nature for our, our own uh, ends, like creating bridges and and automobiles and, inter and uh, internal combustion engines, but of actually transforming natures which can run away from us. And the classic example, of course, is Frankenstein, um, where, or GMOs is another case, there's a certain fear associated with sci science getting away from ourselves. So what's the difference between uh, what's a genuine fear and what isn't a genuine fear? But it provides the basis for, a, uh, for, for being able to uh, reject science. Then finally, there science can be passed on as a tool. That is, we get uh, science creates technology create tools for us, but we can sort of forget. We can begin to take them for granted. Um, and my favorite example, uh, well, it comes from Giambattista Vico, who uh, a an Italian philosopher who argued that that science, uh, sorry, humanity goes through stages: poetic stage, uh, heroic stage, and then a scientific stage. But the scientific stage something strange happens. In the scientific stage, we, uh, we, we get so many uh, scientific stage, we begin to take the fruits of science for granted, which causes us, which, which uh, corrodes the communities and makes us more egotistical to think that we don't have to make uh, strong, um, uh, strong trade-offs between you know, feeding a lot of people but also wanting to be organic. Or, or getting lots of energy, but but uh, we don't have to to uh, use things like uh, fossil fuels or nuclear power plants. We be we begin to get spoiled, put put it that way. So um, my favorite example here is a, s a senator who said, "Why do we need weather satellites when we have the Weather Channel? Why do we need Landsat satellites when we have Google Earth?" That's exactly what's going on because you you begin to take a uh, you turn on the TV and there's the Weather Channel. But no thought that, that, wait a minute, satellites are, are what give us the, the Weather Channel. Now, I have to admit that there's a U.S. senator, the person who told me that was working for a set of senators, and he refused to tell me who it was. But he's incredibly trustworthy, and for obvious reasons. He's incredibly trustworthy, um, so I, I believe it happened. It certainly sounds like it happened. So here, here's the thing. This is what's so interesting. The same things that make science work, these six things that I talked about, if you now talk about what makes science vulnerable to science denial, they turn out to be the same things. So, and these by, uh, you know, appealing to, th these provide a veneer of, of legitimacy for being able to reject science when you, uh, you're uncomfortable with the findings. So, if you take examples of science denial, uh, the, the ones that I mentioned and a few more, you can sort of bin them in the, to the categories that I just, uh, that I just talked about. That uh, you can, for when it's, you can, th there's the I am not a scientist objection, the jurious doubt objection, it's a hoax, Frankenstein. And so the point is to understand science denial, 
you and let alone to do something about it, you have to understand the, uh, the, the different versions that it comes in and go back to look at the first people who encounter them. So you have to, it's sort of like whack-a-mole. If you try to, you know, expose uh, um, uh, an example of science denial as being wrong, sure, you can do it, but it's like, you know, hitting one of these things on the head, so it just pops up uh, elsewhere, you know. Uh, so you have to understand the machinery first in able to, to b before being able to do something about it. So what doesn't work is moralizing or appealing to credentials or throwing more, more science and and graphs and, and numbers or writing strong editorials. They've all been done. They've all been tried. So you have to do something different, which are the sort of strategies that I, that I talk about in the book. So look at this person here. He feels comfortable. He thinks he's, uh, he's clearly in a disaster is clearly coming, and but he feels comfortable. So how do you get him off of that track or how do you get him to uh, realize that it's not safe there. Now, there's two strategies. There, science denial is sort of like crime in that they're short-term and long-term solutions. The short-term solution is to, put up is to put up fences, to have more policemen, to put warning lights up, you know, barbed wire, and then you'll keep them from getting on the track. But in a way, that's just a short-term thing. That's like, you know, throwing more policemen uh, at, at crime. What you want to do in the long term is, you know, he feels comfortable. You want to make him not feel comfortable by getting into his head somehow. You can't just bonk him on the head. You have to get into his head and make him feel like it's not, uh, like it's not smart uh, to be there. But that's a lot harder. That's that um, putting up uh, the, the short-term solution, which is, you know, throwing more police and so forth, that's done by an authority. That, that has to be done by someone who's already authoritative, someone already in power. But what if, uh, but what if you're not in power? Somehow, the rest of us have to figure out how to get into his head. And and wha what occurs to me here is, has anyone seen the movie Jaws? The, you you know what happens in Jaws, right? There's a scene near the beginning where there's three people on the beach. There's the scientist, played by the nerdy Richard Dreyfus, who says there's a shark out there. Um, but you know he, he doesn't have good social skills and, and he can't really communicate well. And then there's the mayor who says we can't close the beaches. We'll, that'll destroy the economics of our town. Um, and he has all the power. And then there's a third person, the sheriff, who's trying to figure out what to do. So, uh, but the point is the scientists can't convince the mayor who after all, the mayor was elected by the townspeople in order to protect their interests. So how do you, and, and y you, know, you know what happens. So the, um, the uh, I show this clip to my classes in science and technology and I say, this scene is the most frightening scene in the movie, which is much more frightening than in any of the scenes involving sharks. So, but the problem is, in from the audience position, we could see what to do. You know, we, we know we haven't seen, at that point in the movie, you haven't seen a shark yet, but you have, you probably know friends who have seen it, you've seen the posters, you've listened to the music and the music is practically practically a meme for, uh, you know, danger, there's a shark out there. So, so you know what to do. So we know what to do. We, d we know, you know, get the hell off the track. That's like saying, you know, don't go in the water. But what's the, the hard part is what, what if you were on that beach? What if you were on Amity Beach? How would you know which person to listen to? How would you know to listen to uh, that Richard Dreyfus, that nerdy guy with no social skills who you've never met before, who's from a place on the mainland that you've never heard of from an institute, 
how do you know that's the person to listen to rather than this other guy that you've known all your life and who's the mayor and who everybody knows and has all the power? It's, it's really hard. So that's the, that's the hard thing to, to figure out. So um, what are the long-term solutions? Well, th there's some bizarre ones. There's August Comte, who I, I write about, one chapter is devoted to, early uh, 19th century. And Comte, Comte thought, Comte realized that science, people don't innately believe in science. Science isn't innately authoritative. So the solution would be, you know, he grew up a Catholic. Uh, the, uh, the woman he was obsessed with was also a Catholic. So he said, okay, here's what we do. We make science, we replace God with science. And we recreate a religion based on that, and we get people to get this affective um, connection by by treating it like a religion. So he had sacraments, he had s saints, and he had um, he had um, uh, special marriages and and uh, the all the paraphernalia, signs and and uh, flags, and he had all the things that that associated with the church. He transferred to. Science and there's even a chapel. This is a picture of a chapel in Paris that was built according to his instructions. That when you first go in and they flip on the light, it looks just like a Catholic chapel. You know, there's a little thing up front. This is taken from the front back, but there's a little, you know, altar up front and there's there's flags and it's. Um, but then you look really carefully and you see that all the details are different. There, for instance, these alcoves here. They aren't saints. They're scientists. Galileo is there, Gutenberg is there, um, uh, even Aristotle is there. So it's, it's all, uh, he thought the only way to get s make science authoritative was to treat it like, turn it into a religion. That's one. Uh, another that I talk about in the book is the Ottoman Empire. It was once one of the, the, the biggest empires in the world. It, uh, you know, far bigger than the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, rivaled the Russian Empire. But at a certain moment, it was a Muslim Empire. At a certain moment, it began losing battles to uh, European, the European uh, empires seriously, and they realized they were in trouble. It was an existential threat. And the danger seemed to be, the, 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 um, the reason seemed to be that they were lacking something that a kind of knowledge, science and technology, that the West possessed. And uh, so they thought that facing this threat, they thought, well, what do we do about it? Can we really import Western science and technology when it was developed by heathens, uh, by people who were not uh, Muslim? Could we really import science and technology and still be good Ottoman citizens and still be believing Muslims? And for, there were decades of, the, it went through, uh, Ottoman Empire went through um, decades of, of self-analysis ba basically amounting to uh, a large-scale humanities education as to whether what effect would it have on us? How can, can we really import it and be, and be faithful Muslims? Um, what will it do to us? And, uh, the, um, the, and, and they ultimately decided that they could. And the debate was played out not just in the academies, not just by the administrators, but even in popular magazines and novels and plays and, and uh, cartoons all throughout Ottoman society. The worry faced with this existential threat do we import science and technology? And they ultimately decided, yes, we, it wouldn't be in conflict with religion. And so that whole debate is, is a model for how, for a long-term solution to the, um, to the, uh, to th that might, so that you might be able to get in inside his head. Uh, another person that, that I look at for long-term solution is Hannah Arendt, a uh, German-American philosopher. She lived, she, she was born in Germany 
and li lived through, uh, was in Germany in the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s. She lived in a time and place when moral authority, spiritual authority had completely vanished. And after she finally, she was arrested once, uh, she uh, got out, went to Paris where she was interred during the occupation of, of France and uh, finally made it to the United States. And she wrote a lot about authority uh, and uh, uh, about the nature of authority. And her writings nowadays pop up a lot in current interpretations of American discussions of American politics and lying and truth and so forth. But I think her most interesting and most relevant writings are authority. What, what constitutes authority? What can, we, uh, what can we do to restore it when it vanishes? And uh, her first, um, she wrote a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism. And uh, you know she was interested in the question of how in conditions when author moral authority vanishes, you can get uh, people who are, uh, who polarize, um, who owe their, um, their uh, how people who owe their, their, their careers to, to family, who uh, polarize situations, recycle stock phrases, and are, are, are braggarts who, uh, who are obsessively cultivate media attention, how these kinds of people in uh, Germany could acquire lots of power. And what she, uh, her reaction was, the first thing you have to do is to tell the story of how we got into that situation. That is, something like Nazi Germany didn't happen just out of the blue. It's not a fluke, but it developed partly, it developed because of the particular way that our institutions behaved. What about these institutions made it possible and so she thought you had to go back and, and study this tr tradition, how it happened. This is the first step in trying to, um, in, in, in figuring out uh, what to do. So that, that's, in a sense, what I tried to do in the book, which is to go back uh, and look at the beginning of, uh, at, at those people who first argued for the, um, for the authority of science and, and look at their experiences in order to understand what happened since. So that's basically the question of how we get inside that person's head instead of just bonking him how to, uh, how to begin to get I inside his head. Um, because, you know, there's some species I've heard that destroy their native habitats because they don't understand the relation to the habitats. Uh, so they wind up destroying it and wind up, therefore, uh, destroying themselves. And Hannah, Hannah Arendt's storytelling was one way to give us the information that we need about our relationship to our environment to uh, keep us from destroying the, um, the uh, d destroying ourselves. And so that uh, based on what information we have, that information provided by the storytelling, we then, that gives us enough information to act and to uh, decide how intelligent a species we really are. Thank you. So we're going to open it up to questions. Uh, we're just going to spend 10 minutes or so on questions. So uh, if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come around with the mic. Yes. I noticed in the beginning of the, um, when you said what the features that make science um, work, they're also um, used by another tact of, of science denial is to, um, to sort of conjure those values. They fake them in order to convince people that they're just as good as science. And like some examples would be that they, they tend to have a tendency to talk very sciencey. They use big words. Quantum is used a lot. 
And it's people feel that since science has authority in our culture, that those people sound an awful lot like scientists and is that uh, an equivalent authority? And uh, if you can comment on that, and also does that have an influence on uh, the scientific literacy of the country? That, that's a really good question. I have two comments, and then the third, then, then I'll answer your question. The first comment is, yes, there's something that one phenomenon is uh, people like creationists trying to adopt scientific language. But that's not really science denial. That's appropriation of the mantle of science. That's like the, the person uh, on TV saying, I'm not a scientist, uh, wearing a white jacket in order to, to, to pass themselves off as an authority. But that's not really science denial. That's something different. That's, that's credential, tra uh, credential cloaking, where you begin to look like a scientist, as you said. Then, but I also wanted to comment is that there's another thing that what your comment uh, that your comment reminded me of is that there the another tactic is to undermine the authority of the institutions and the scientists. And what I'm thinking of is that there are certain organizations whose entire purpose is to attack not the science but the credibility of the institutions that uh, that create the science. So that I call those social iagos. That is, you know how Iago and Shakespeare um, in, in um, um, God, I'm blanking out, in Othello, right, advances his own career, his own ideas by sowing doubt. So these people, these institutions advance their own agenda by sowing doubt, uh, doubt in the institutions. But again, that's not quite science denial. Science denial is saying, um, no, that's wrong. Yes, second row. I'm a little confused about what you mean by science denial, since most scientists and people that aren't, don't have the white coat, as you put it, question science, and part of the fundamental things that you're pointing out in your chart is science is <laughs> evolves, many times is incorrect, and corrects itself going forward. And sometimes the, the for a lot of issues, we're not there yet. So science denial seems to me, in some respect, unless you're saying, okay, the Earth is flat. Everyone knows the Earth isn't flat. Uh, well, almost everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a cons I think you have my question. Yeah, I got it. Let me, or, uh, let me try to answer, and then you tell me whether it's the answer or not. Uh, by science denial, I don't mean a wholesale rejection of science. That's anti-science. I don't mean pretend science. That's pseudoscience. You know, this is the, I, I yeah. I don't mean skepticism, which is to be suspicious of science when you know you're not quite sure what's going on. I mean outright rejection of science when there's no warrant, no evidence for it. Now I know you're going to say how you tell the difference, but but uh, consider uh, consider this. Suppose you go to a doctor, and the doctor says you have a very uh, severe illness. You have to um, take this drug, and it's very expensive, and it'll make you sick for a while. And uh, one reaction might be uh, uh, skepticism might lead you to sort of look into other studies, see if you can go on the internet and find if there's a discussion group and, and see if this is really so or not. Um, the, the other way is to say, no, you're wrong. I don't have that disease. So, but there's a big difference between the two, right? And that's, well, and that's that, that last case is science denial. That is, there's some people who, say, consult engineers about building their hotels or uh, consult um, uh, 
or and and uh, go uh, consult weather.com about the weather and it'll pile onto social media so consult scientific uh, scientific findings throughout the rest of, of their their lives but when it comes to something that conflicts with something they want to do they'll say no that's a hoax so that's science denial not wholesale denial of science but only in particular cases where um, the, the the finding co uh, conflicts with their uh, their interests. D does that answer? Sort of yeah. I happen to like carbohydrates. I happen to like carbohydrates. So I was very happy with some of the shifting around in the pyramid. But would you call that skepticism or denial of the 1970s pyramid? Well, again, what's the motive? behind rejecting it or doubting it. If, if maybe you've seen other studies that say ca carbohydrates aren't as, don't quite belong in the position they do on the, uh, the periodic table, uh, periodic table, food triangle. The, uh, you've talked to other people who e eat a lot of ca carbohydrates and they're just great. You've talked to some doctors. If, if, if you're relying on evidence, that's not science denial. But if you just say um, just the science is completely wrong, that uh, and your motive is that you really like carbohydrates, and you you uh, th then that's that's science denial. Yes, hi, I want to first of all thank you for coming coming to Harrisburg to speak to us tonight. Um, about ten years ago, I was editor in chief of Sky and Telescope magazine, which ah. I'm sure you've heard of, and I was having I dinner. Subscribed. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Uh, I was having dinner with Joel Premack, who is a cosmologist at UC Santa Cruz. It might, you know, it's possible you've met him or interviewed him at some point in your career. And at dinner, he made a really interesting point. I wanted to find out your thoughts about what he said. Um, he and his wife, who was with us for dinner that night, they had recently writ written a book about trying to reconcile science and religion. I don't remember the title of the book. But he said that when you're speaking to someone and trying to get them to accept a scientific understanding of the world, the important thing is to not give the, not force them to make a choice between science and religion, because if you, you force people to accept one or the other, the large majority of people are going to accept this, the religious interpretation. So he said that he always, when he gives talks to the public or talks to people in the public, you know, to show respect for the religious beliefs and to try to find ways to, you know, get people to reconcile science and religion rather than forcing them to make a choice. So I'm wondering what your thoughts about, uh, th it's not really my idea, it's his idea, but that idea of his has stuck with me for about 10 years. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And that's the, um, I mean, there's nothing to be gained by polarizing the the situation by by uh, polarizing because then it, it makes it an either or either you're scientific or or you're you're religious so but that's why the Ottoman case was so fascinating to me because this was a decision a culture wide decision that no there's there's nothing wrong the the Ottoman Empire was permeated by by uh, the Muslim uh, uh, permeated Muslim religion permeated pervaded all the institutions from education the military to uh, it, it was in the West, science and religion is a battle in which you negotiate the boundaries. You know, you can get, you take this, you take this. This was totally different for the in the Ottoman Empire when you that you had to be convinced that no, there was absolutely no um, no conflict between between science and religion. Now they had various strategies for doing that. One of which is one of which was to 
to rely on the authority of the sultan. The sultan said, we're going to do this. Another was to, to talk about how it's not irreconcilable. Another is to say, well, they got it from us. We, the, uh, a lot of Islamic science said, uh, uh, was at the core of Western science. There were a lot of strategies, but the, the core idea was that, um, that, that, that there wa it wasn't in incompatible. And again, how, how do you get that across? Well, one way is storytelling, the kind of thing uh, Hunter entered. two questions. I'll try to mash them into one. Uh, we're talking about the United States principally here because in the rest of the world, the attitude about science and science denial is significantly different. Uh, another factor is, uh, well, I can anecdotally say there are people who, for religious, economic, or political reasons, as you stated, uh, are selective about their science. Uh, they still celebrate their high school student who wins a science award. Uh, but there are many, many others in this country for whom a solid grounding in math and science is an option. Uh, and I just wonder if you can talk about the vulnerabilities that are particular to the United States uh, in the way that I was starting to approach it. No, I think you're right. This is sharpest, not, and you know, I, I'm not really up on the situation in other countries. It's, it's much easier to pay attention to it here, but I think it is worth, it is much more serious in the United States. I think it's different. You know, as I, as I said, science denial has been around since for, for long, since the practically the birth of modern science. The, as I said, there were some people, this cleric, uh, Cremonini, who refused to look through Galileo's telescope um, because he was just so sure that that it w uh, that, that Galileo was was wrong. So um, it's uh, right. It's it's mostly in the United States. What was your second question? Oh, oh wait, oh wait. I was going to say why it was different. Why it's different. It's different now than it was in the past. And the reason is in the past people were sheepish, or at least president U.S. presidents were sheepish. George W. Bush kind of waffled on on um, on science denial. He sh you know he implicitly on, on say climate change. He implicitly uh, he sort of knew what the IPCC was saying, and he he, he seemed to be just you know, he, he was uh, he was kind of weaseling on it. Now our politicians are uh, proud and confident in in denying and uh, rejecting science. It's part of even their appeal to voters when. Um, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal started building a, a dam to protect against uh, the coast from oil, and scientists said this is this is a waste of money, a complete waste of hundreds of millions of dollars. He, in rejecting the findings, he he's he said, "Look, I'm a populist in the, the line of uh, Huey Long." So it was part of his appeal to voters to reject uh, science, and th that's different from the way it used to be. And the other question was. Oh, right. Yeah, that's another education is, is certainly a part of it. But but again, um, 
scientific arguments only convince those who are prepared to think scientifically. And most people, you know, thinking scientifically is not the default drive, the default setting for, for human thinking. Any other questions? Um, I have a question about the role of media and communication in all of this. And the image that you showed, the, the, journal, the, the gentleman has uh, got his nose buried in a newspaper. Um, and uh, so I, I'm curious about um, the, the ways that scientists can interact with the media that people are consuming. Um, journalists love to report on uh, things that are coming out in scientific journals. Um, and they make headlines, but often because those journals are debating each other and arriving at things, uh, the way the, the way that a lot of us consume it is uh, that these findings are contradicting each other all the time, and therefore it can't be trusted, it, and especially when it comes to health and well-being articles. So I, I'm curious about uh, the ways that um, scientific findings can be communicated to the population to better understand what scientists are doing in scientific journals and, and getting that information out there. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I mean, public, public understanding of science is, is a really complicated issue. At my university, there's something called the Alan Alda Center for Communicated Science. And what it does is to train scientists to express themselves more, more clearly, and they use improvisational techniques in order to teach the science to do that. But I don't think that's the whole thing. That's only part of it. Um, because that, that's only one person explaining to the other. That's like, like there's information going from here to there, and as long as it's clear, uh, it's through. There's a lot more complicated complications to it. Number one is what you po pointed out, is when the cases of science denial, which is about very uh, complicated um, and volatile issues like global warming or GMOs or, or pollution, um, and other things, the uh, uh, opponents will engage in these science denial, and then you can't really, t and, and usually it's the opponents who, who can explain more, who, who are the more rhetorically um, sound. I mean, I've seen anti-nuclear activists dress up as mushroom crowds and so forth, and, and guess what, and then there's a scientist in, you know, a, a coat and tie, and guess who gets on the evening news uh, that night? You know, the, 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 the press gravitates towards certain kinds of explanations that the that the advocate that certain um, uh, activists know how to manipulate so um, th the the only way I think is through telling more and more stories because people as I said don't think that sci thinking scientifically is not our default setting it's thinking is ruminative and contemplative and you know driven by seeking our own interests and somehow how do you appeal to those I think th the answer is through y you know not through not necessarily through more clear explanations although that's part of it but by telling more stories more stories like jaws where people who are not scientists can see what the danger is of not of, of ignoring the people of at least not listening to the people who tell you that there's a shark out there it's less it's it's less not understanding science than not appreciating the role of expertise. I have heard it said that some of the brazen tactics Big Tobacco used to undermine scientists um, are one of the main reasons why science has been lacking credibility in recent years. You've taken a much longer view of history. Do you think it's really that outsized of a role? Wait, what, uh, say that one Some more time. Some of the um, 
tactics used by big tobacco, um, mm. like creating false institutes, attacking doctors, scientists, et cetera, that that is like the major reason for a lack of credibility in the science world right now. And I did. I want to know your thoughts if that is fair, a fair characterization, or if that's sort of giving it too much credit. No, that goes. Whoops, that goes back to. The bureaucracy, uh, the bureaucracy instance. Yes, there have been cases uh, again and again of scientific communities acting in their own interest or for the interest of people who hire them. Tobacco is one. Um, the uh, episodes like the Tuskegee, the Tuskegee episode or, or another, people were uh, the Nazi scientists and so forth. And that's, um, those are examples. It's easy to say, well, that wasn't science, but you know, the tobacco companies certainly looked like they were doing uh, the science, so it's easy to mistake them for doing science. But that, that's one of the dangers. Are, are there a group of people who are reporting a finding, are they acting in the, uh, in the interest of people who hire them or, or uh, reporting a genuine result? That's certainly one of the tensions, and, and a, a lot of the, 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 the big bad news of, of uh, things like big tobacco are uh, certainly undermine the authority and undermine expertise, what I just mentioned uh, before, under undermine the trust and expertise. So we are just about out of time, so we have time for just one more question. Uh, hello. Um, I was thinking what you said about the default and restricted, but there's times in history where science has bloomed. It just, like Greek times, ancient Greek times, or times of age of reasoning. What, what drove that? Was it technology? Was it cultural? Um, do you agree with that thought? I mean, there are, see, I, m I remember my wife's grandfather raised in the early 1900s, the time of airplanes, and he was a tinker there. But they, they were, they were very enthusiastic and pro-science. It seemed like more of a common man was pro-science at that time. Well, wait, there's two issues. One is when does science thrive? Um, and what's really interesting was in, in Europe, part of what made it thrive was competition. There were centers of, uh, in, in each, uh, each government supported uh, different kinds of, uh, supported scientific research um, beginning late 17th century uh, through the, the 18th century. And uh, there were kind of, comp uh, Germany, France, England, Denmark, Sweden, and there, there were these centers that were sort of in a little bit of competition, and that if if a scientist wasn't adequately supported in one place, they would they might move to another. There was a lot of communication between them, so it fostered a kind of collaborative but also intense atmosphere that really drove um, it drove European science. China had an incredible uh, scientific infrastructure, but it had it had no competitors, so it didn't it didn't grow as as quickly as the um, as elsewhere where there were it, it was more distributed. But if your question about scientific authority, there's a scientific authority is a different kind of question. Right after wars, scientists tend to have a huge reputation. So of course after World War II when you know the two great uh, uh, developments, three great developments uh, during the war, one was um, radar which ended the war, um, no, radar which won the war, the atomic bomb which ended the war, and uh, the mass production of penicillin that, that cured lots of people. 
scientists had a huge reputation after that. I mean, Forbes magazine into the 50s would print articles about scientists and would have uh, you know full-page articles about uh, about science. So it's you know the public the public's image of science goes up and down, but partly when um, when this is uh, when there's evidence of, of the public benefit of science. I mean, I could talk more about that, but that's the basic uh, answer. Should we give a round of applause for Dr. Robert Kreese?